Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Today, we are bringing you a very interesting discussion that took place in honour of St. Bridget at the Irish Embassy in London recently. Our own Roisin Ingle joined RTE's Anya Lawler, former Irish rugby international Sophie Spence, editor-in-chief of Marie Claire magazine Trish Halpin, and the multi-talented actor, director and creative artist Alwyn Fuere for a conversation about challenges and change in women's lives. They talked about repeal, about the always-on nature of the digital age, about the importance of role models for young girls, creativity and lots more. We know you'll enjoy this one. Challenge and change. Sophie, a rugby player, an Ireland Grand Slam winner, a rugby commentator, a tea shop owner. So, (laughs) Sophie Spence, tell me about challenge and change. In your life. First off, thanks very much for um, having me here. Uh, It's great to be a part of an event like this. Um, I suppose I'm I'm a recently retired rugby player, um, but before that, um, I was a teacher. So I lectured in sports uh, science in Hartlepool. And you can hear from my voice, I'm not the typical Irish. Um, I was born in Newcastle, but my family are from Belfast. Um, When I started playing for Ireland... I didn't, well, before, I suppose, I didn't have a clue that... I had never watched a rugby game before, never mind knew about women's rugby. So I'd never watched a rugby game before, didn't have a clue what the Six Nations was. So this is only going back eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, so completely clueless to it. Um, when I got the opportunity to actually be part of teams and... Um, People, I suppose, believing in me that I had raw talent that could be switched from netball to rugby. Um, I was given opportunities from the Irish coach at the time, who was Goose, Philip Doyle, um, and he really showed self-belief in me. Um, I was training in Newcastle on my own and going back and forth to Dublin um, between, between Irish camps and things. And in 2012, I was capped for Ireland within a few months. Um, so very, I suppose, fast-tracked. Um, but in 2012, I got my first cap and I went around the seventh circuit as well. In 2013, and I suppose this way it starts um, challenge and change for me, in 2013, I, this was my second year to be a part of a, such a special group of women and management um, who were male and, and one woman. Um, but to be part of such a special group of women who had people who had been in it for maybe eight to ten years, who had slept on people's floors to go training, had made their own sandwiches for lunch between, um, between training sessions and things. Um, and they did the hard yards to get us to where we actually were. Um, in 2013, I suppose it was kind of like the bandwagon effect. Um, we were up for a Grand Slam, something that Irish women's team had never done before. Um, so I suppose it's fantastic. People want to watch us. RTE um, televised it. Um, and I suppose that was the start of people starting to watch us and notice that these women are a special group and we can actually do something here. 
Um, in 2014, we were heading towards the World Cup and we were faced with a pool of USA, Kazakhstan and New Zealand. Um, <laughs> and if I'm right at um, numbers, I'm not great with them, but four or five times um, World Cup winners. Okay, so had never been beaten in that amount of tournaments. Um, and I suppose it's like anyone, sure, they'll go and give it a grow, you know. Um, they'll do the best. And I just remember on the day that we played New Zealand, um, it was our second match within the tournament. We, as a group, um, performed, but well, not performed, sorry, we prepared um, only for about eight weeks prior to, the, to a World Cup tournament. So think about that. You're away from each other for such a long period of time. You come back together for eight weekends, not even eight weeks in a row, eight weekends, that's how much time you have to prepare together to know each other inside out, to understand the analysis of different teams, what your opposition's actually going to put at you. Um, and when it came to it, um, we were in a camp situation in Marcusi, fantastic facilities. Um, the night before... The night before the match, we started watching movies, and I actually won, and the senior players hated me for it. Um, my favourite movie at the time was Frozen, so we got to watch that, um, and we had everyone sing and let it go. It was something, I suppose, that kind of put a, a light on the moment where, you know, we can relax, um, and we knew that we had a job to do the following day. Um, I remember very clearly that when we were starting to warm up for the game, um, looked across to New Zealand and they, look, they looked worried in a way. I'd never faced New Zealand before at this point. Um, and when we stepped out on the pitch, we had a massive fan base of Irish fans, flags. You could hear them screaming and that was everything. It didn't matter about the result. We were prepared for what we were going to do. But to have that fan base behind us, that meant everything. Um, Obviously, I hope everyone knows the result. We won that day. Um, but to say that we were the first Irish team to beat New Zealand, that's a huge challenge. And we actually did that. You have to have a proper round of applause. Yeah. That's when, I suppose, changes started. We put ourselves on a map that we were women who could win a Grand Slam. We now beat um, the best team in the world... Um, not just one tournament, but four or five in a row. Um, and we were starting to get places. We had this self-belief in ourselves, but everyone in the crowd started believing in us as well. It also started opening doors for younger girls. Um, parents were starting to open their eyes to, my daughter can actually play rugby and she can be a rugby player if she wants to be that, um, which I think was extremely important. And I don't think, until that point, I don't think we realised how much we played a part in the fact that we were role models. Um, and I think that's a huge thing now that we actually take very seriously because we, we obviously are very professional in what we do in terms of training, diets and everything like that. But the way we present ourselves during a match, post a match, when we're in the street, it's so important to engage with the crowd to not just get people to want to come back, but you can actually change someone's feelings about something do you know someone could be having a down day and you come up and take a photo with them it can change so much um and I think that's when things started changing for us as a squad we got the opportunity to play in a home world cup which didn't go to plan of what we wanted um and I think now with women's rugby where it's at unfortunately I was on twitter tonight but saw the result of um the island england match and England now are so lucky to be faced with uh, uh, professional contracts. Um, and Ireland, unfortunately, 
took a hammering tonight. So you're going again, professional team versus an amateur side again. So in terms of Irish sport, we aren't where we need to be. Um, we have campaigns that are coming about now, our 2020 Can't See, Can't Be. For young girls to be able to see, see um, female sport, sporting athletes, whatever, whatever it is, whatever code it is across, to be able to go to a match, to see it on TV if they can't get there, to see what people are actually doing, what it takes, the demands, the determination, the resilience that you have to go through to be successful and... Do you know, not everyone is an academic person. I certainly wasn't. But I found my niche of what I'm good at. And the fact of you have that support network around you as well who can actually, you know, be something really, really special. And you are seen, but I have a feeling part of your story is a bit like those trailblazers on, on the wall outside. That there's, I mean, you're running a tea shop now. Coffee shop. Coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> I do sell teas, though. And she did the plastering yeah. on the tiling. Yeah. <laughs> If you were a man, mm. would you be running a coffee shop now or would you still be in rugby? Um, I suppose put it this way, um, when I first moved to Ireland, I moved because I wanted to be uh, with the team so I could tra train 24-7 with them. Um, I managed to get a job and it was very difficult for me to and I started working with Leinster and I was on full-time full €15,000 for the year, do you know? So trying to balance living in Dublin rent, food, eating, eating good, nutritious food to allow me to train morning and evening. Do you know, it doesn't really balance out. So <clears throat> every job that I've had, a part-time role, I've always been on contracts where it's nine months. God, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to leave Ireland? Do you know, rugby, I'm here for rugby. What do I do? And I suppose without the support to, I suppose, just given a job, do you know, I, I was always someone searching for something, do you know? Um, and the fact for me, I suppose my career finished probably a little bit earlier than I liked because I suppose at the end of my career, I had a voice. Um, and I suppose with profile, you can start pushing things a bit more. And I knew my career was going to end. So I used my vo voice more. Um, unfortunately, it didn't go the way I wanted. Um, so I, I ended up retiring. But um, with that, mm -hmm. I suppose I was out of work as well and made the decision to move uh, to Wales with my partner, but I didn't have a job, so I made work for myself, and I was preparing for, once I was finishing rugby, what was I going to do? If I couldn't find a job in sport, what do I love? Coffee and food. And um, <laughs> love chatting to people. So I was kind of preparing myself and going speaking to different people around Dublin um, who great, greatly give me their time, but... I made work for myself all the time through, do you know, and it's, it's not to say everyone else does as well, do you know, I'm no different than anyone else, but it is, unfortunately, a lot more difficult being a female athlete and trying to be as professional, professional as you can and balance up that as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah. you she was shy. She thought she was going to be shy. Yeah. Yeah. Trish, I bet you you found that a fascinating story. Trish Halpin, you all know Mary Claire. Trish has been Editor of the Year, voted by her peers in 2013. She's an incredibly busy woman. And you're a woman who's trying to work out ways to talk to women and go on talking to women in a traditional medium at a time of change. So your thoughts on challenges and change in your own life and your own yeah, work? I think, um, I, I think I'd, what I'd like to talk about is the, the digital age and the huge challenge, uh, change for the good, but also the challenges that that brings to me in my professional life and probably all of us in our personal lives. 
Um, uh, as you say, I'm the editor of Marie Claire magazine. I've been in magazine publishing for ooh, nearly 30 years. <laughs> we didn't even have email when I started, <laughs> let alone, uh, you know, all the, all the digital technology that has come along since. Um, and uh, I think what, what it does is it throws up some very in interesting thoughts and questions about communication, how we get our information, what kind of information we are allowing ourselves to get in, in this day and age. And um, there are so many fabulously positive things about uh, the digital age. I can do my job incredibly quickly. I can do it from anywhere in the world, which is fantastic. But with um, with the sort of advent of every uh, you know digital uh, websites, social media, which we are all interactive in, there is so much competition for people's time, people's um, attention, people's advertising. Um, an interesting fact for you: um, the uh, all of all the digital uh, advertising in the world, eighty percent of it goes to Google. Or Facebook. So that leaves 20% of all digital advertising going to everybody else. And we're having to look at different ways in order to... We're talking to more women than ever. So on Marie Claire, we're probably communicating in some way with about 5 million women every month, if you look at our digital footprint, our mm. social reach, the print, all the different brand extensions that we have. But making money out of that is far, far, far more challenging than, than it ever was. Um, so I think that that, for me personally, that's, that's a challenge and a change. Um, I think it's amazing. Social media has done so much good for women in particular in terms of getting people's voices out there, campaigns, getting people behind campaigns. Um, you know, that, that it really can drive momentum very, very quickly. But the double-edged sword of that is I think that people try to silence women's voices online as well and in social media and the trolling and the... So, so there's a kind of a, a, a double-edged sword to it. So that's kind of how I would say on the profes professional side for me, challenge and change. Um, on the personal side, I mentioned the fact it's great, I can do my job from anywhere, I can work from home. I work from home on a Friday, actually, uh, which is lovely because I can pop the washing on and spend all day in my pyjamas as well as, uh, as, well as uh, doing all my work. But there is this, uh, you know, we, I'm sure everybody in the room feels this as well, this kind of blurring of lines between home and work life and this idea that we have to always be on, always on. And how do you switch off and when do you stop just checking that last email before you go to bed? And I think this is particularly the case since smartphones, uh, which I think it's probably only really in the last five years that we had everything, our lives are in this device on, you know, in our hands. And as, as women, we are, I think we have a lot of anxiety about trying to keep on top of our lives. And these devices help us to do that, which is amazing. There are so many good things, all the apps and different things. I do my Sainsbury's on there. It's brilliant. <laughs> but equally, once I go on there, I get sucked in and you, 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 you can't come out. So I think, again, there's this sort of um, double-edged uh, thing about all the positive things. So I think it's... How do we manage that? How do we do that going forwards? I think there's an interesting thing too in terms of our daughters who are like even yeah. more like that. But, but, but it's almost like young women are growing up with like an avatar of themselves mm -hmm. that they have to live with and the pressure of that and then the gap, you know, the mental health issues in, in the mind, the gap between the two. But we'll come back to that. But just mm -hmm. for now, women's me media directed at women, at mm -hmm. a women's market usually. Uh, does, is that under threat? Does that have a future? Um, 
I think it is under threat. I think any kind of traditional, uh, well, I'd say traditional, leg- legacy publishing, newspapers, uh, magazine, businesses, they're all under threat. But interestingly, um, some of the pure play digital uh, businesses as well that have been you know, started up in the last five to ten years, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice, they've, uh, you probably all heard last week that they've been um, shedding lots of jobs as well. So that... I think comes back to the point of we have to make decisions mm-hmm. as uh, as you know people. How do we want our information? Do we want jour- journalism holds governments to account? It holds businesses to account. It gives us different viewpoints on the world, and we're all streaming the messages that we want to hear. And I think we need to have a broader. I always find it remarkable we do the horse racing on the news, but we don't do the fashion shows. Do you know what I mean? What makes what makes one more serious than the other? They're both well, just entertainment. What, what makes one more serious? What do you think it is? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Alwyn, I don't even know how to begin to describe you because you're such a remarkable woman and such a remarkable artist. And actually, you are someone who seems to me throughout your career to have carved out quite a unique niche for yourself. I don't imagine... That was easy, but but you have created this around you. So so talk to us about challenge and change in your own life as a woman. Oh, um, challenge. Well, first of all, it's challenging to be here and talk about it. <laughs> uh, I'm used to you know rehearsing it first uh, <laughs> and thinking about it. But um, I guess, I mean, for me, the biggest challenge really, both in my work and in my life, is maintaining or maintaining independence of thought. I think there's no greater oppression than the oppression of the mind, I keep telling myself. Um, (laughs) How easily you can be socially conditioned and conditioned by all the things you were talking about um, and in the way that you broke through um, to, to think and respond a certain way. And so as a child of um, uh, foreign parents from Brittany... My father was a political activist, so they came here. As, they came to Ireland as political refugees, and uh, there were no foreigners in Ireland at that time. And I was very conscious of my need and urge to assimilate and become assimilated. So, to the extent that uh, I I refused to speak French, you know, we spoke French at home. I started refusing to speak French. I'd only speak English, and I wanted to be like all the people out there. Uh, and I could never imagine you being yeah. like all the people out there. I yeah. mean, really, I wanted never to be like all years. the people out there. <laughs> and, um, but of course, you can't make it happen. And gradually, I realised that um, I had, you know, a, a, a very different way of thinking and of seeing the world. And um, the challenge then was to find uh, a, ch- a channel through which this could be communicated a way of communicating with the world, which was beyond language as well. Because um, your latest work is, is, doesn't use words. Uh, d- yeah, the latest work doesn't use words. But I was very interested in non Well, I was interested in, initially in the visual arts um, and then moved gradually into theatre, which in Ireland at the time was all words. Um, but there was something about the... The, the non-verbal energy of live performance, um, which became my home, I suppose, became my place, became my place of where, how I could communicate with the world. Um, 
given the fact that in Ireland the theatre at the time was totally verbally driven, um, that was a challenge in itself, but it was a very interesting tension. So every challenge and I think every difficulty, uh, every time I encounter a difficulty actually when I'm making a piece of work, I go, this is the moment, because it's difficult, this is the moment if I stay with it, a door is going to open and a whole new load of new things are going to appear. And that happens again and again and again in our lives, I think, when we face challenges and difficulties um, and, and just stay with them mm-hmm. and, and see them as gifts as opposed to barriers sometimes. You know? It's a very common thread of resilience yes. coming through the three of you, isn't there? Roisin, challenge and change. Away you go, Pat. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, honestly, it's like... It's quite amazing to be here. Thank you very much for uh, inviting us all and yes, for celebrating you. Bridget. And thank because you for your office as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice office, has to be said. Um, so when I thought of challenge and change, I kind of immediately knew what I was going to speak about because the most challenging time in my life um, has and now become a big change in Ireland's life as well, and they're very connected. So when I was in my 20s... Um, I became pregnant and it wasn't the right time for me to have a baby. Um, That was a very personal thing, something I had to think about and agonise over. But it was very clear to me that I wasn't ready to be a parent. And um, when you lived in Ireland at that time, well, you lived in Ireland up to January 1st, um, that wasn't something that was a a very challenging thing Mm -hmm. because there were no doors opening around that situation. You were having doors closed and you were having... Tara Flynn wrote an amazing play called Not a Funny Word and she describes, which is in a similar situation, she describes how you have to become a spy. So you have to try and investigate and find out where can you get help, the help that you so badly need because you can't get it in your own country. So you have to go and find, but you have to do it surreptitiously and you can't tell anyone. And that's a really, really challenging place to be in. Um, I was lucky in, in some ways that I had the money or the person who... Uh, I was involved with, uh, came and said he would pay for half. It's very expensive because I had to go to England. Um, But I was able to get that money together. I also had a very close friend who was willing to accompany me, which was also something that many people didn't have. So I do feel quite lucky and privileged in my own situation. So I came to London. Um, Amazing, amazing medical, kind, kind people in London uh, helped me and gave me the medical care that I needed. It was difficult going back to the hotel. You know, when you have an abortion, there's some bleeding and all that kind of thing. So that kind of very intimate, sort of painful, stressful time. You want to be in your house, but you're in a hotel. You're bleeding on sheets. You're kind of going, oh, God, someone's going to have to clean these up. You're feeling bad about it. They sound like trivial things, but it's difficult. So that happened to me. And then I went home. And again, you don't tell anyone, so you're kind of... This quite momentous thing has happened, something that you do need to process. I, think, I don't think it's, it's a very... It's a big deal. It's not something that you trivialise. But you go back and you can't talk to anyone, so you carry on your life. And the funny sort of thing for me is I, I uh, work in the Irish Times, and for 15 years I had this column in the magazine where it was one of those really... Some people hate them, confessional-type uh, pieces. But I really enjoyed doing it, and I had a certain following. And... I would write every week about every sort of... I'd hang all my dirty knickers out on the line and I'd tell when me and my boyfriend had an argument or I'd, and people would often say to the me... mother-in-law, oh, yes. Yeah, that was the really brave My one, mother-in-law, actually. Queenie, yeah. she'd be delighted to get a mention in the Irish Embassy. Great Porter Down. Oh, she'd be so chuffed. Um, and I would... T- put everything out there, you know, I was open and I was honest and everyone would tell me how I was so open and honest and every time someone said that to me after I'd had my abortion, 
I always sort of winced inside because I felt like I'm not. And then, as we all know, things happened, you know, various cases happened. We called them the alphabet women. We didn't know who they were. We didn't know their names. We knew them by letters, P or Y or X or... And Savita Halapanavar died in 2012. And meanwhile, I'm writing every week about all my things, but I've got this big thing that I want to talk about. And people like Mary Holland in the past, amazing women like her, have stood up and said their stories, and they've been... Nobody's reacted, and... Anyway, the eighth of the Irish there. Times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, but, but it was remarkable that she was the only one for, she was for so long. The only one, and she to me like was someone that I, I always had in my head. I knew Mary, and I knew her daughter Kitty, who also worked in the Irish Times, and I always thought of that courage to, to say something out loud that nobody else was saying, and even the most liberal people were sort of saying, "Why are you doing that?" You know. Anyway, fast forward, uh, it just became too important, like for me, to not talk about, and so one day I just sat down and. I had to do it. And I, my mum was saying, why are you doing this? This is like, you know, what are people going to say? It's a big deal. You know, it was, a, it was not an easy thing to do. It was challenging. Uh, but it was kind of, I got to a point where I couldn't live with myself. Because if, if me telling my story, someone who's this kind of, oh, she's a bit of an idiot. She, she's a funny person. She's, you know, there's sort of a people, some people liked me. And here I was, an ordinary person saying, so this thing happened to me, which I did. I wrote in the Irish Times. It was on the cover of the magazine. I had an abortion. I'm not ashamed of it. This was a part of my life that I needed to do. But it was a big deal. And at the same time, Tara had uh, spoken about her abortion at Electric Picnic. And it's really weird because some people think we kind of uh, plotted it together. But it was like one of these weird things. Tara came to the same conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, we didn't. It just happened. And, oh, the relief of that for me personally. But then just... It was, you know, it was amazing walking down... I'll never forget walking down Grafton Street um, and other places in the days afterwards and women just coming up. <sighs> get emotional. Mm. And saying, like, mm. they'd say the same thing before the Me Too thing happened. They would say, Me Too. Mm. It was really interesting because I always think that when the Me Too thing happened, this was a Me Too from Irish women. It, it sort of allowed, in some ways, Tara speaking, me speaking, Jean Nihulavon, other people who'd spoken, it allowed a voice for people who'd had this experience, but were just not allowed to talk about it. Because, you know, for whatever, all those reasons, because, it was, well, it was illegal. It was illegal in our country, so we couldn't talk about it. But it, it was like, for me... No, we talked about lots that was illegal. <laughs> yeah. What was interesting was that That's women <laughs> wouldn't use their voices yeah. about this illegal thing. Yeah. And what's interesting, listening to the four of you, is, is women's voices. And, and mm. even at a time... Uh, uh, but in worlds where very often, you know, we want to hear you this way, we want to hear yeah. you that mm. way, we want to hear you on these topics, and we all know, you know, I have a nice voice, I'm known for having a nice voice, and, and we all know <laughs> nice voices, but women have other voices too. Yeah, we sure do. And they aren't voices... We hear very... Yeah. Charlie Flanagan down the back might know a bit about my mad vo- my bad voices, but, uh, <laughs> but we don't... And I, so I get to... You know, that's a space in which it's safe to me to talk in a certain way in a public space. Yeah. But women... You know, if I spoke like that to a, to a group of other people, for yeah. instance, it, it wouldn't travel yeah. so well. It, it, so, so, so talk more about that conversation then. That well, I mean, yeah, and I don't <clears> want to hog it because no. I think everybody's you know, got so much great things to say. I would like to just talk about the change aspect then. I mean, for me personally, the change of being able to stand and walk through my city and my country, knowing that, like, you know, my mother was worried people would hate me. 
But that was not what happened. I got a couple of very mean letters, which mm. I expected, but I got an avalanche of warmth and love and support, you know, in so many different ways. And that was not the story that I thought was going to happen. And I think when I look at the Citizens' Assembly, you know, so I would like to bring it on because um, I'm looking at the snow and I'm thinking of Leo Varadkar. I don't know. I'm thinking of love, actually. I'm thinking he'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just thinking that... Um, do you know, like, I, I, I mean, I know Simon Harris, Leo Varadkar, people in our government, like, there's things that they don't get right, but I'll never forget uh, sitting at home and watching it on my phone when they came out with uh, Catherine Sapone and Leo Varadkar, Simon Harris, uh, Catherine Sapone stood up for us. Like, I can't tell you how that felt, that the leaders of our country were finally, because we've been asking them for a long time, were saying, we have your back. We know that this is wrong and we're going to fix it. Like, amazing. And the Citizens' Assembly, they all came and they were like, oh, flip, I have to do this. Probably, like, I have to do this stupid Citizens' Assembly thing. Oh, my God, what's it about abortion? Oh, my God. And they sat there for weekends and weekends and they all came to almost exactly the same conclusion that the Irish people came to last May. The change of that. And just one final thing I'd like to say about the change. I uh, produced with, with Jennifer over there the women's podcast with the Irish Times. And we have spent the last, since our existence, you know, three years talking about this, fighting for this, saying this is not right, this is wrong. And uh, like a couple of weeks ago, we had Helen uh, from the HSE in and I had this amazing conversation with Helen where I was going, OK, so I'm a young woman now and I get pregnant and I, and I really don't want to be in. There's so many reasons why that can be and they're all so complicated and personal. What do I do? And Helen explained to me myoptions.ie, the website you can go to and it's all there and it's just... I can't explain, like, the change of that from where, like, Ivana Bacic trying to give out leaflets back in the 80s to try and help people understand... Numbers on the back of Numbers on the back of And somebody I saw on Twitter said, and this is the last thing I'll say, she just said, I, I just can't get over how emotional I am. She was in a bathroom, and there was a picture on the door with the number to say, this is who you can call if you're in that situation. Oh, my God, I just want to say, Ireland, amazing. We're amazing. A beacon, yeah, I think. Yeah. And you had that courage to speak your truth. Um, and there was, actually, and it chimed <clears throat> and sparked and unleashed a, conver a conversation that was going on all over the place. But I know once you see, you know, and again, a common thread, finding voices, but also the reactions. And this time, you know, it was a truth that came to be a, a majority and d did deliver change. But the fact that there women in the public sphere and online in particular because it seems to be safer for people to do it online um, that the, you know, the, the suppression of, of voices, the, the putting down that that's even more virulent online yeah. and, and there doesn't appear you know, other than don't read it or give up or <laughs> do you know what I mean, at, at the moment it's such a free for all, there doesn't appear mm. to be very much regulation or no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And women just have to be resilient. And it's an extra thing, I think, for, for women in any sphere of public life, mm -hmm. and women in politics and, um, and public in general. And even the royal family over here, isn't that right? They're, they're, having, um, <laughs> they're having problems with this. And, and, and it's, it's really curious. Does anyone have an answer to that? I don't know. I mean, it's just that it's so polarizing. It's really polarizing people's thinking and people's mm -hmm. thoughts. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, you're kind of, if there's something you kind of want to discuss, in an area that you're completely supportive of, yeah. you can't. Yeah. 
you know? I mean, it's really, really difficult. And I think it's, 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 um, it's, flattening, out, it's, um, it's flattening out the debate and it's flattening out the, the complexities, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that's really problematic. Are women's lives changing for the better, then? Yeah. I mean, I, I think they are. I just think it, it coming along from the... Because a lot of women... Okay, yeah, you can see... The, but a lot of women feel it's very hard inside. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, on the one sense, there's more, but as you were saying, there's also more expected, and it's, it's harder and harder to keep up. And there's an awful lot of women who've been given... You know, it's a, we're making progress. You, you know, you're there, you're a Grand Slam winner. But there, there's still that extra boulder to try and I, I still have this feeling that it's harder and mm. mm-hmm. well yeah. I, I, I often feel that you know in, in, in all this struggle that um, there is still a kind of a still a we still find it gra- difficult to grasp what this concept of patriarchy really is mm. because patriarchy is defined as as a, a, a culture and a, and a society that is where the dominant ruling uh, yeah. forces are male, but um, I think it's more complex than that. <laughs> I think it's not about that. It's about the entire structure of society. And I think we can, we can do... I mean, I de- definitely think that the quotas are really important and they make a massive difference and everything, but there is something about fundamental structure of our society that I feel... Uh, is holding some of those big difficulties. Mm-hmm. I think, though, I mean, obviously, I think last, in the last few years, uh, things like the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. the women's marches... Um, Waking the feminists. Yeah, 100 years of female suffrage last year. There's yeah. been so many positive, strong... Um, you know, one of the, the writers that I love is Chimamanda Ngozi yeah. Adichie, her Why We Should All Be Feminists, her, te- her TED Talk. Um, I think there are so many positive um, and strong messages that younger people... I mean, I have 15-year-old twins, I have a, a son and a daughter, and they both talk about feminism. Now, you know, my 15-year-old son is talking about feminism, and that, you know, the Gillette ad last week, did we all see that? You know, the, the Gillette ad, which was quite polarising. They were talking about that, and I just think the fact that younger people are having this discussion is is really... Although I found with my... Because I've, I've twins, too. And I, I've I, twins, too. Really? I've <laughs> twins! <laughs> one was for and one was against. <laughs> no, no, they were rampant on repealers. But they're... Yes, I, I think guys are, are definitely better, but, but I really have a sense... I mean, my, I thought I was a feminist, but my daughters are teaching me different now. Oh, yeah. I, I, do you know what I mean? But they There's, don't have the baggage, you know? They don't have the baggage no, that we had. I tell them, they it was need a little bit different to narrative. It was yeah. a little bit harder. But, you know, there are, one of her friends came out to her parents the other day, and she's not even sure if she's kind of, you know, gay. She's just going out with a girl. She doesn't want to be defined, so... And her parents are very conservative Catholics. Yeah. And my daughter's coming home and saying to me, I mean, like, why were they upset? <laughs> and because to her, the, the whole notion that they wouldn't react generously is offensive. I get why they would yeah. be upset, because I grew up in a culture where so many people were never able to say things to their... But there are, there are gaps, and I, I'm just mm. wondering about dialogue over those gaps, mm. which is why mm. encounters like this are, are so important, because in some ways... Their feminism is very de- dismissive mm. of the trailblazers that went before. You know, I hope mm. to God one day down the road you don't have some, you know, young whippersnapper of a rugby player going, wasn't that hard, really? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like natural, though, and in a way, isn't it great? There's a part of it that's like, 
we, some things worked if that they're so they can take it for granted going oh yeah. geez, this is so yeah, annoying yeah, yeah, yeah. what's wrong with these people like then you kind of go okay it is really annoying we should educate them but really the fact that they have that confidence to, mm-hmm. to do that I think is brilliant you mentioned patriarchy there and uh, it sort of made me think about um, Gabriel Scally's report uh, and uh, into the cervical screening scam thing because I wanted to talk about that a bit I thought that was just unbelievable, that Scali report, because um, just so mis- such misogynistic comments directed at these women who were in the health service trying to get the help they needed. And I just, I feel like in, Scali said in that report that women's health in Ireland isn't taken seriously. Now, as much as I'm so proud and happy that we are now allowing women who need to or want to have abortions, there's something else that we also need to look at, and it's deeper, and it's, it's not just going to be fixed by mm-hmm. legislation. There's a cultural thing, too. I think it's really important to talk about that, you know. I mean, yeah. similarly, in the, in the UK, we're doing some work around this at the moment about how the, um, you know, the justice system is still very much failing women who are victims of, of gender-based violence. So even post-Me Too, which is what, where, where are we, a year and a half on, and um, there really needs to be some serious work and thinking about how to redress that, either women's, are, you know, victims of sexual crime or domestic violence. So that, I'd say, in the UK is a huge issue for women in the way that yeah. it is for Ireland. I also think there's a huge issue about women in prisons. Yeah. Um, I remember once doing... Um, Oh, it was one of those real RTE specials. We weren't allowed into Mountjoy Prison to film in the women's prison in there at the time, so we had to film by talking to people who'd been in, and that was main, mainly involved hanging around the drug treatment centres and getting to know people there because that was usually how women ended up in, in prison. And in the beginning, I, at the time, I'd young children myself, and I, I remember... I look back uh, and I'm so ashamed of myself and I remember, you know, they're not minding those children because we'd be with them, you know, from morning to night. You know, and, you know, but the baby's not... And, you know, the child would be going to school and we'd be there with the mother and uh, the child would have no money for the lunch or for the school book and we'd be... You know, because the mother was a drug addict who was trying to uh, support her habit. But the thing... What would happen when those women who would, you know, get done for shoplifting eventually, and it was shoplifting, and repeat offences, that's all, uh, they would be sent to prison. And you'd, you'd kind of look at this and think, why is there not a place where somebody who's really a minor offender, somebody who's in a bad way in their life, why can't they go somewhere with their kids where you could actually then try and do something mm-hmm. therapeutic and something that would be of benefit instead of this... Yeah perpetuating of mm, cycles. It's criminalising women who are often victims of either drugs or mm. sex crimes or drug, you know, they're exactly to your point, yes. but we're criminalising women for these things. And the, the other burden that women who do suffer from domestic, you know, this, the, the way the victim internalises shame mm-hmm. and won't speak out and won't go public the way that so many people, you know, in Ireland in the past would have kept silent about their own experiences. You use silence. How is silence powerful? Well, I, I think um, we were silent before we spoke. So speech possibly comes from the intensity. I'm, I'm leaving aside the whole thing about being taught to speak and everything, but speech probably comes from the intensity of desire to uh, articulate something. And I think silence, if you remove the speech end of it, it actually allows that, that, that thought, the, the force of that thought and the energy of that 
thought or that response or that desire to be actually felt viscerally through the body, which is a much deeper way of understanding something than through words and intellect. See, I agree with you, because I think words can be manipulated too easily, mm. but that's what I do, because that's my living. I'll tell you what I was thinking, because I didn't know what we'd be talking about, and then thinking about where we'd bring it up. I remember when I was little, um, my granny talking about St. Bridget. And like, while St. Bridget was very holy and all the rest, there, there was the sense that she was a bit bold. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> wasn't, I had to go and read up all kinds of other stuff, but it, that wasn't passed on. But the, the sense that she was a bit bold. And she was for the women. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't be getting my grandfather talking about St. Bridget or anything like that, but my grandmother did. And we were brought to St. Bridget's Wells, okay. where my sister's warts were cured, and it was a bona fide miracle. Um, okay. <laughs> I remember in particular the rags on, on the trees uh, for, of the Brathrida tradition. And it seems to me there is something, you know, in this survival of this story of this powerful woman, um, through pagan times, into Christian times, the, the survival of this myth and the way that this has been handed down from generation to generation by the women. There are all kinds of women back from you, other women whose stories we will never, ever, ever, ever know. But I have a feeling that Bridget is, is, is a bit... Biddies are, are, are kind of the thread. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The go between mm -hmm. them all. So I'm throwing that up in the air oh, and I yeah. want to finish up on that one. Away you go. Does that make any sense to Sophie? <laughs> I suppose someone... Did Bridget play rugby? I don't imagine. No, but I bet you she would have won if she did. Yeah. I suppose for me, growing up in Newcastle, I wouldn't have been away of Bridget. Um, but living in Ireland for five years, obviously I've become aware of a, a lot of things. And for me, being around such strong, positive women who weren't, weren't afraid to use their voices. I think one of the women um, who I, I spoke to Roisin about was um, Fiona Coughlin, mm. and someone who's still now best captain I've ever had, um, someone who's mentor, friend. Um, I'd have to hang up on her a number of times because she'd be ringing us every day a few times a day, but <laughs> someone who has belief in herself and everyone else and will push you to the furthest you can go and even further. Um, that is, I suppose, coming to Ireland and being in Ireland has taught me to be around, I suppose, strong, positive women and not to be afraid of trying to push yourself and use your voice. That's a great thing to say. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. Well done. Trish. Uh, well, I have a confession to make. I, like Sophie, wasn't really very familiar with... Uh, I know. Blame, blame the Irish parents who came over here in the in the sixties. They didn't. They didn't. We knew about St Patrick, but we didn't. You're really not up know last night weaving your no, bridges. I <laughs> and I, I have actually Adrian to thank for introducing me because we we sat next to each other at the Women's Irish Network lunch, and he was telling me all about St Bridget, and I was like, my goodness, this is amazing. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And can I say she's my new role model? I think Bridget was probably a witch. Yeah, good yeah. and um, I take the saint off, really. <laughs> well, she was a goddess. That's what she was. Yeah. She wasn't a saint. That was just yeah. put on her. That She's was just put a on her, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think she was a witch. I think she was uh, definitely um, a, a, a healer. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, I, I, again, I know nothing about her. I'm just kind of feeling. <laughs> guessing. Feeling our way, yes. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think um, she was uh, transgressive and um, a rebel. 
Yes. Yeah. I think you're, you, you know, given what we know from history, I suspect you're more right than anything else. Right? I, I, I don't know, but I feel like that's her spirit that yes. we're talking about now. Yes. Well, in the, when you talk about continuity, just that the phrase from um, Sarah Maria Griffin wrote an amazing piece uh, about repeal when it was all happening. We all went out to Greystones and went into the water. It was very cold. It was very early in the morning. What was it called? We face this land, but the first line, there's a line in it that says, we are the daughters of the witches they could not burn. Yeah. And I just think, that's amazing. And just going back to what you say about the legacy and about the stories we haven't heard and the women who had to suffer and be pushed down. And the fact that, you know, I think Irish women are rising now. I think, you know, so many people helped. I have to give Leo and Simon and all the rest, you know, really good kudos. But I have to say, the women of Ireland yeah. repealed the Eighth Amendment. Like, the women of Ireland rose up and said no more, we're not having this. And they got out there, they knocked, they did everything. And these are, I mean, that's why, like, I know what you're saying about the younger women, and that is a bit annoying, but oh my God, when I meet younger Irish women no, now, it's I know, I know, but I'm just yeah. saying it's funny. I'm just, when I meet younger Irish women now, I'm just like, oh, this is just the best thing because it took me to get into my 30s before I could actually get myself the strength. And this is someone, I'm a bullshy person. So, I mean, you know, it took me a while. But these women are coming at 15, 16, and they're just like, what's what's that? Sorry, we've got to sort that out, fix that, change that. That's not right. And I'm just going, oh, yeah, do it, do it all, do it all, you know. So I think that um, legacy is just so exciting now because Mm -hmm. the baggage of all the things that we kind of had and the prism through which we saw things is fading away for those younger people. And there's just, I mean, even when you look at the... the trans issue, and you look at the non-binary, you look at how we're all sort of starting to realise that we need to accept each other for who we are. It's okay. It's okay to be different. It's okay to not fit in. You know, and I think Ireland is really uh, leading the way on that. You know, our, our Taoiseach is a gay man, descended mm. from Indian yeah, guys, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. we're just, uh, I'm really proud of us, because people are looking to us now with so many like you look at America and things happening, and people are looking to Ireland and saying, look what we've done, like we've got equal marriage by public vote, the only country in the world, we repeal the Eighth Amendment. Like, I think there's a lot for us to be proud of, and we have to thank probably the likes of Bridget and all the witches. And we have a responsibility to keep going. That's the other big challenge, not to let the wave go down. Well, sisters, Rachamadzurai, how about that one? Rachamadzurai. Rachamadzurai. That's all we have time for today. Thanks very much to the Irish Embassy in London for today's episode and to Anya Lawler, Roisin Ingle, Alwyn Fuera, Sophie Spence and Trish Halpin. What a great lineup! Remember, you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan, and until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.